Last night, how many of you, this is your first service that you've made, you were not here last night. Could I see your hands? Wow, lots of new people. Well, I'd encourage you, we have DVDs and CDs of last night already duplicated. This morning will be duplicated within 10 or 15 minutes after the morning service. And uh, I encourage you to get last night because I used it as an introduction and I started talking about how that most people don't understand God. And there's many reasons why there's confusion about the true nature and character of God. But one of those reasons is the Bible, which sounds like a terrible statement. But in the old covenant, God released wrath and judgment and punishment upon people that is not consistent with the way he deals with people in the New Testament. And if you don't understand why there was an old covenant, why God vented his wrath in the old covenant and why he won't do this under the New Testament, if you don't understand this, you will get a skewed impression of God. And so it needs to be explained. I gave a lot of examples last night of different things like where Elijah called fire down out of heaven and in the New Testament, his disciples tried to do the same thing and Jesus rebuked them and said, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. He rebuked people for wanting to do what was done under the Old Testament. And I talked about uh, the intercession, the way it was done. In the New Testament, it says in First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. And if you try and intercede the way Moses did, the way David did, the way that uh, Elijah did, and if you try and intercede that way in the New Testament, you are antichrist. You are against Jesus. There's a difference. And it's amazing how most people have not understood this and so I introduced this last night and began to start talking about 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says, God is love. That is the nature and the core of God. And when Adam and Eve sinned, God did not turn his back on them as most people believe and just kick them out of his presence. He kicked them out of the garden, but that was so that they wouldn't eat of the tree of life and live forever. He did not want us living forever in a sinful world and in a sin-corrupted body. He had something better prepared for us. And so you can see in Genesis chapter 4 that he was still walking and talking with man and he was still fellowshipping with them. He did not reject Adam and Eve he drove them out of the garden, but he still loved them. And he didn't want them to know how sinful they were. And he did not want them to have a sin consciousness. He could have given the law to them right there when they sinned and were in the garden of Eden. But he waited 2,000 years to give the law because he didn't want us living under this sin consciousness and under this law administration. Thank you for that thunderous silence. That just stuns people because basically the church has been taught that the law is our friend, that God gave the law to show us what we must do to get right with God. And that is not why the law was given. The law wasn't given to set you free. The law was given to bind you and to condemn you and to destroy you and make sin come alive. I know some of you are thinking, no way. Yes way. Look at this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to just take a few verses and share some things that the scripture says about the Old Testament law. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in verse 55, 
It's talking about the resurrection, us receiving a glorified body. And it says in verse 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. You know, this is a statement that if I hadn't read this to you out of the Bible, if I'd have just said, how many of you believe that the law strengthens sin? Most Christians would say, no way. The law is what breaks sin. The law is what diminishes sin in your life. It's just the opposite. The law strengthens sin. Why would God give us something that strengthened our enemy, sin? It didn't strengthen us in our battle against sin, but it strengthened sin in its battle against us. Why would God give something that strengthens sin? And the answer to this is that sin had already defeated us. Sin had already separated us from God. Just because God wasn't releasing his wrath on it and he wasn't punishing sin, or as we used this verse last night, Romans 5, 13, it says sin isn't imputed where there is no law. God wasn't holding sin against us. Even though God wasn't punishing sin, sin was still destroying the human race because even though God didn't bring his judgment on sin, sin opens up a door to the devil and allows the devil to come in and steal, kill, and to destroy. So even when God wasn't punishing sin, sin was still destroying people because it gives Satan a direct inroad into your life. And so sin had beaten all of us, but people were comparing themselves among themselves and measuring themselves by themselves. And people were thinking, I'm okay. You know, I'm, I'm better than this person over here. You hear people say this same thing today. They say things like, if the hypocrites down at church make it, I'm gonna make it. The only thing wrong with that reasoning is the hypocrites at church aren't gonna make it. <laughs> and yet people think, well, you know, hypocrites down at church make it. Well, they aren't your standard. Romans chapter three, verse 23 says, all of sin come short of the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. And you are gonna be measured up next to Jesus. And even though you're better than I am or better than somebody else, who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when you are compared to Jesus, you are going to come short. And so you need to quit measuring yourself by other people and thinking, I'm average. Uh, you know, if everybody else makes it, I think I'll make it. That's not how you do it. You compare yourself to Jesus, you need a savior because you have sinned and come short of what God intended you to be. And yet people weren't aware of this. They lost their sense of right and wrong. And so why did God give the law? To show you sin and to make sin come alive, strengthen sin. For the person who was self-righteous thinking, God, I'm really awesome. You know, like, like he gave this example in scripture about the Pharisee and the publican that went up to pray at the hour of prayer. And the Pharisee says, Father, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I fast twice in the week. I paid tithes of mint and anise and cumin. I thank you that I'm not like this old publican over here. See, he compared himself and he says, I'm better than this man. And yet the publican just wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. And he smote himself upon the breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, the publican went home justified, not the Pharisee. The people who are self-righteous thinking, God, I thank you that I'm better than other people. How do you bring them out of that deception? You give them the law. 
And the law condemns. And the law strengthens sin. And it makes sin come alive on the inside. This is the reason that God gave the law. was for self-righteous people who were deceived because they'd been comparing themselves with other people. And God gave the law to say, you think you're good? You think that you deserve right standing with me based on your performance? Let me show you my standard. And he gave a standard that nobody can keep. Nobody in here can keep the law. I know that right now there's some people in your mind, you're thinking, man, I believe we're supposed to keep those 10 commandments. And there's not only 10, you know, we usually talk about the big 10, but there's hundreds of commandments. And people say they're fighting for the 10 commandments. And people who say that most of the time couldn't even tell me what the 10 commandments are. And yet you believe you're supposed to keep them. It seems like if you believe you're supposed to keep them, you ought to at least know what they are. And yet we just have this mindset, oh, I'm supposed to live by the Ten Commandments. You know, there were commandments in there about the clothes you're supposed to wear. If you are wearing clothes today that are part polyester and part cotton, you broke the law. You, uh, the law says that you have to wear clothes that are all one fabric. You can't mix fabrics. If you have a mixed fabric on your body, you have broken the law. The people who say that you're supposed to keep the law, you don't even know what the law says. If you got a mole on your body, you broke the law. If you got a flat nose, if you got a crooked back, if you're flat footed, if you're stoop shouldered, if you have poor eyesight, you've broken the law. Why did God say all of those things? Because he hates people with moles on their body. Does he want you to go burn all the moles off your body? But no, if you want to know what perfection is, if you think you're going to earn right standing with God based on your action, God didn't make men with moles. That is a flaw and a result of sin. And if you got a mole, you're polluted. (laughs) So does God want you to burn the moles off your body? No, but if you are going to trust in yourself, he's saying, all right, you think you're good enough? Here's perfection. Here's the way I made man to be. Now, in the New Testament, he just loves you and he accepts you the way you are, moles and all, amen? But if you are gonna be self-righteous, God says, all right, if you are gonna get there on your own, here's my standard of perfection. And he shows you that every one of us in here has missed it. Amen. I could just stay on that for a long time, but this says that the strength of sin is the law. Sin had already beaten us, but we had missed it. And we thought, I'm really pretty good because we compare ourselves with other people. So God gave us a different standard. And he said, this person's not your standard. Here's my standard, thou shalt not. And he gave a standard which was so holy, so perfect that it condemned every one of us. There's not a person in here who lives up to the law. You can't live up to the law. It wasn't given so you could keep It was given to show you you can't keep it. It was given to show you that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then the next verse, Romans 3, 24, says being justified freely by his grace. We often emphasize that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's true. But the point is that we have all now been justified freely. Since we're all sinners and none of us can save ourselves, well, then salvation just comes by grace. So the law strengthened sin. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And in verse 6, 
It says, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, that's talking about the Old Testament, but of the Spirit, for the letter, the Old Covenant law kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, you know, when I start talking about the law, I've had many people approach me and say, brother, you're missing it because you're talking about the ceremonial law versus the legal law. And there are two laws in the Old Testament and we've been redeemed from the ceremonial law. We don't have to go and observe the Passover and the feast days and the sacrificial offerings and all of these things like having a garment that is only one kind of thing. We've been redeemed from the ceremonial law, but we still have to keep the big 10, the 10 commandments. Look at this. But if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones, the only part of the law that was written and engraven in stone was the 10 commandments. The ceremonial law was not written and engraven in stones. The legal law, the 10 commandments was written and engraven in stones. If the minister, and notice it calls it administration of death. The law ministered death. In the New Testament, life is associated with Jesus, not death. Satan comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. John chapter 10, verse 10. But I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Life comes from God. Death comes from the devil. And yet the Old Testament law, written and engraven in stones, was a ministry of death. I tell you, if you believe the Bible, this is problematic for the way most of us have been taught. Most people just don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. This is what they've been taught and this is how their religion has taught them and so they don't care what the Bible says. That's not what we believe. You know, one time I was working on a lady's home in Childress, Texas. I was painting her house and I was witnessing to this lady the whole time. Turned out she was a Baptist, went to First Baptist Church and uh, anyway, I talked to her for a whole week while I was working on her house. And she says, why did you ever leave the Baptist? Says, we need good young men like you in the Baptist church. And I said, well, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they kicked me out. They, about the time I got useful, they, they kicked me out. <laughs> and she said, what do you mean by the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Are you talking about that speaking in tongues? And I said, well, that's part of it. I said, I do speak in tongues, but I said, that's, there's more than just speaking in tongues. She says, well, that kicked you out of my Baptist church too. And I said, how could you say that? And I turned over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I think it's verse 39, where it says, forbid not to speak in tongues. And I showed her that in the Bible. I said, right here, it says, forbid not to speak in tongues. She says, hey, there's lots of things in the Bible that we don't believe. <laughs> At least this woman was honest. <laughs> And when she said that, it's like, how do you talk to a person? It just, oh, there's lots of things in the Bible that we don't believe. I just let it go. But there's a lot of people that they are more moved by what they think and what they've been taught than what the Bible says. I'm telling you, this says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, that the law written and engraven in stones was a ministration of death. It killed, it condemned it made sin come alive. It strengthened sin. It didn't strengthen you, it strengthened sin. So again, verse seven, but if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious 
so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. How shall not the ministration of the spirit be rather glorious? You know, even though the scripture here and I am speaking against the law, the law was wonderful in a way. I mean, it was awesome what God accomplished through Moses, but what we have through Christ is infinitely greater And for people to want to go back and live by the law instead of live by the spirit, it just defies logic. The only reason I can see that people do that is because they haven't got the real revelation of how wonderful it is what Jesus did for us. And they are still living by the Old Testament. The average Christian today still lives under the old covenant law and it has some glory. It's certainly better than not knowing God at all But the ministration of the Spirit today is infinitely greater than relating to God out of law. And the next verse says in verse 9, For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. So this is talking again about the Old Testament law. So here it calls the law a ministration of death and a ministration of condemnation. So these three scriptures I've used, 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says that the law strengthened sin. This says that the law was a ministry of death. The verse nine says the law was a ministry of condemnation. If you put this together with Romans chapter eight, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. There is no condemnation. God is not condemning us. And yet the law is a ministry of condemnation. You know, the word condemnation is a religious word to most people. We don't use it a whole bunch outside of religion. And it's a cliche and most people don't know what it means. But it just means to declare unfit for use. Like when you condemn a building. When the government condemns a building, they won't let you occupy it. It's not fit for use. And so it's a condemned building. Well, in a sense, this is what the word condemnation means. It just makes you feel unfit for use. You know where that comes from? From the law. God never wanted you to feel that way. God doesn't want you to feel unfit. You know, I prayed with a man out here today, just awesome. He got set free and stuff, but I was telling him that he loves God with all of his heart, but he just is condemned. He lives a condemned life and he loves God, but condemnation just makes you, it paralyzes you. You know, many of you in here have heard me give testimony that by, you know, just like Audrey was sharing, she sees miracles and stuff. When you preach the gospel, God confirms the word with signs and wonders following. And I've seen blind eyes open, deaf ears open, people raised from the dead. Our own son was raised from the dead. I think Jamie might've been raised from the dead. We aren't sure. We didn't have a doctor confirm it, but praise God, she's with me and alive and well today. And I think she might've been raised from the dead last October. Anyway, we've seen great miracles happen. And most of you believe that. This is Friday morning. This isn't your nod to God Sunday morning crowd. You're the fanatics. Or either a fanatic drug you here, one of the two, amen. So you guys are fanatics. You believe in the supernatural power of God or you wouldn't be out here on a Friday morning. 
And so if I was to see somebody fall over dead and I said, how many of you believe God can raise this person from the dead? Most of you'd be, amen. You'd be right there with me. But you know where I could lose most of you? Say, all right, if you believe it, you come up here and pray for them. And you know what? There's some of you that would be quick to jump up here and pray for them. But I bet you the majority of people in here who believe that God can do it. When I say, if you believe it, you come pray. All of a sudden, your faith turns to fear. Your excitement turns to dread. What has happened? Did you quit believing that God does miracles? No, but when I say you come pray for him, all of a sudden you lose your faith. You know why? Because you don't feel worthy. That's what the Bible calls condemnation. You don't feel fit. You didn't doubt God. You doubted God's willingness to use his ability. That's condemnation. Most of you believe things that you don't experience And you wonder why it isn't happening. It's not because God can't do it. It's because we are condemned. The law condemns us. It's a ministration of condemnation. And if you feel condemned, if you feel unfit for use, if you think, how could I stand up and minister the word because I don't deserve it? Man, here's a news flash. Nobody deserves it. God's never had anybody qualified working for him yet. God doesn't use us because we deserve it. And yet, most of you, I can guarantee you, this is why you feel fear and intimidation in front of people because you think, I don't deserve it. I'm not holy enough. I'm not good enough. Nobody is. Nobody is. Man, I learned a long time ago that when the devil goes to condemning me and saying, what makes you think God would use you? I used to argue with him and say, hey, I'm doing better than I've ever done. I'm studying the word. I'm praying. I'm doing And the moment you start trying to justify yourself with your actions, you've lost the argument. Because the devil will find a shortcoming in you. Every one of us is not the person we should be. I just learned a long time ago that when the devil starts telling me how sorry I am, I just say, guilty. <laughs> you know what? I, I don't deserve it. Praise God for Jesus. I think I'll tell them about who Jesus is. Amen. I think I'll pray for him in the name of Jesus and get him healed through who Jesus is instead of through who Andrew Womack is. And man, that has freed me up. But see, if you're under the law, the law points out your sin. The law, law points out your failures. If you're under the law, you are sin conscious. You are focused on yourself and not on what Jesus has done for you. Let me show you some scriptures on that in Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three in verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Man, there is so much in this verse. I hadn't got time to share it all with you, but let me just point out. It says that the things that the law says, it says to those who are under the law, the law, implying that not everybody is under the law. God never intended for Gentiles, non-Jews, to know the law. And the majority of people, I'm sure there are some people in here that are physical Jews, but you know what? The majority of the body of Christ, you can read about this in many places, 
but it says that God stretched out his hands all day long unto a people that wouldn't accept him. And so he took it to the Gentiles. And the, gen, the church today, the vast majority of the church is made up of non-Jews and we should have never been taught the law and all of the rituals and the things that we have to do. And I know some people aren't going to be blessed by this, but this needs to be said that there's a lot of Christians today, Gentile Christians who are trying to become Messianic Jews. That's wrong. You do not need to go back. Now, there is benefit to go back and studying the Passover and seeing the symbolism and recognizing that it's fulfilled in Christ. There is benefit to understanding these things. I teach on some of those things. But there is zero. Oh, man. Some of you really won't like this. But there is zero benefit to you wearing a prayer shawl and a hammocka. Is that what they call these little things they put on? Yamaka. And, and doing all of this stuff and keeping the feast days. Jesus set you free from all of that stuff. It is not healthy. It's a return to bondage. And some people don't like that. And I know some people are going to say, well, I do it with the right attitude and stuff. I've never met one of those people that isn't just legalistic to the max. This is what, this, it was the Jews that persecuted the early New Testament Christians because they were getting free. The very reason that the church meets on Sunday instead of the Sabbath was to make a break from the Old Testament law. One of the Ten Commandments was you had to observe the Sabbath and the New Testament church did not observe the Sabbath. They specifically meant on Sunday, the day of the resurrection, to make a clean break from the Old Testament law. And anyway, on and on we could go. The law wasn't even given for us. And yet we are just riddled with this fear of the law. And some of you, I believe you've got to keep the Sabbath. Well, do you keep it from sat Friday sundown to Saturday sundown? That's the Sabbath. It's amazing to me how Christians just pick and choose and say, I believe you've got to keep the Sabbath. And Sunday is the Sabbath. Sunday isn't the Sabbath. The Sabbath is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. It's not Sunday. Why do you sit there and say you're observing the Sabbath when you break the very command about it? I know some of you are not liking what I'm saying. But you know what? If I don't counter these religious traditions and you just try and mix it all together so that, well, oh yeah, I believe in you got to keep the Ten Commandments. You have to remember the Sabbath and then you observe it on Sunday. You're breaking it. So am I saying that we all need to go to observing sundown Friday to sundown Saturday? No, I'm saying that the Sabbath is fulfilled now in Christ. Hebrews chapter four is about that whole thing. I've got a great teaching entitled Our Sabbath Rest that would just... Rock your boat. You need to get that. So the law was not given to everybody, but here's the purpose of it, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law was given to make you guilty and to stop your mouth. Your talk about how holy and righteous you are. Thank you, Father, that I'm not like other men, like this publican over here. I fast twice in the week. It was given to stop your mouth. 
You know, when people stand before God, I've heard people say, man, I'm going to ask God this. And why did you do this? And why did you let this happen? And why this and why that? You know, that's stupid. When you stand before God and you see the awesomeness of God, his glory, you are going to shut your mouth. You're going to stand dumb before God and you say, oh, thank you, Jesus, that I didn't ask that dumb question. Amen. <laughs> all of your questions and all of your gripes and all of your complaints are going to be over with when you see the awesome glory of God and you're going to fall on your face. And you're going to confess that Jesus, you are Lord. Amen. And that's what the law does. The law makes you just stop justifying yourself and talking about how that you're right and God's wrong. You know, Job, he had all kinds of things to say until he saw Jesus. And when he saw God manifest, then he says, I put my hand over my mouth. I have spoken words without knowledge but I'm not going to speak anymore. And he just shut up and bowed down. That's what the law was given. It was to given to show you your knowledge of sin and to make you guilty before God. Stop your mouth and keep you from justifying yourself. If you use the law for that purpose, for self-righteous people who are promoting that I'm holy and righteous on my own and God owes me something well, then you're using the law for the right purpose. It was given to stop your mouth and to take away this self-righteousness, self-confidence and bring you to the end of yourself. That's why God gave it. In the next verse, verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law gives you knowledge of sin, not knowledge of forgiveness, not knowledge of God's love. The law never ministers anything good to you. If you do a hundred things and 99 of them are right, the law would point out the one thing you did wrong. It will focus your attention on your failures. It will never encourage you about your, the good things that you've done. You know, all of us do a lot of righteous things. And yet most people don't think that way. I heard a tape by a man one time who, it was the eight o'clock Sunday morning service. And he said, how many of you in here have sinned today? And nearly every person in the church held their hands up. And his wife was one of them. And he says, I want to know what you did, what you sinned. And she says, I don't, I can't think of anything, but I know I just continually fall short of what God wants me to be. There is a sin consciousness in people. And he says, you know, most of you don't realize that you've done a lot of right things today. You know, you got up and came to a service on Friday morning. Did you know that that's a godly thing to do? You put God first, and yet most people wouldn't even think about that. But you've done some things right. You brushed your teeth. <laughs> you know, that's a good thing to do. You're taking care of what God gave you, and you're blessing other people that they don't have to smell, smell your bad breath. That's a righteous thing to do. Most of you got dressed. That's a good thing to do, amen. You could have come in here without any clothes on it. We could have a streaker. And there's all kinds of things that you did that were good things to do. You're wearing decent clothes. You combed your hair. You, did, you know, you've done some good things today. And yet most of us, if I was to ask, what good thing have you done? I hadn't done anything good. But boy, I'd say, what have you sinned? You don't even know of anything. But you just, oh, I must have sinned because we are sin conscious. You know where that came from? from the law. 
The law makes you sin conscious. It'll never compliment you. It'll never tell you that you've done a good thing. It'll never say anything good. All it'll do is just show you you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And there are some of you sitting right here that you would never, ever, ever accept anything good said about you, but you'll accept any rotten thing, any criticism because you're sin conscious. You're living under the law. Religion makes you that way. Amen. I'm preaching better than you're listening. That's good. Many of you are just sin conscious and that comes from the law. It makes you guilty and it gives you a knowledge of sin, not a knowledge of forgiveness, not a knowledge of God, but a knowledge of yourself and your sin. In verse 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But now in the new covenant, we can be in right standing with God without the law. The religious person today says that's impossible. You've got to keep the law. You've got to live by the law. You have to be conscious of every sin. You've got to constantly be confessing and repenting of all of these sins. And you have to do these things. You have to be law conscious to be in right standing with God. This says you can be righteous without the law without your goodness, without you conforming to some standard. Man, that, that is radical. You know, I'm saying things right now. I'm talking about the nature of God. And there is a tremendous amount of resistance to what I'm saying because we've been taught that God is not this way. We've been taught that God is strict and unless you dot every I and cross every T, God won't answer your prayer. This is why you aren't healed. This is why God won't use you and on and on and on. And it's all law that has made us so sin conscious and we are focused on ourselves when God isn't focused on yourself. God isn't looking at your actions. He's not dealing with you based on your performance. The only thing that turns God on and makes him love you is if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, then God sees you righteous and holy. Ephesians chapter four, verse 24 says, God is a spirit and those who worship him must, not should, not this is the best way, but you must worship him in spirit and in truth. The reason for that is, is God isn't dealing with you based on your actions, based on your flesh. If he, if he related to us based on our actions, every one of us in here would be turned into a pile of ashes. Every one of us would be judged. Every one of us in here is sin and comes short of the glory of God. But God is a spirit and he looks at you in the spirit and he deals with you based on who you are in Christ. And in Christ, you are absolutely awesome. If you've been born again, if you have had your nature changed, you are now the righteousness of God in him. You're holy and you're pure and God is seeing you in the spirit. And this is why most of us aren't experiencing the blessings of God because we don't see ourselves in the spirit. We see ourselves in the flesh because the law focuses your attention on your sin, on your failure. It shows you everything that's wrong. The average person, when they approach God, they come in, oh God, I'm so sorry. I come before you so humbly today. Oh God, I don't deserve this. God, I failed you again. And you just start listing all of your sins, kind of thinking that if you mention your sins real quickly, maybe God won't mention them. 
but boy, you better get everything out in the open. You better put it all on the table. You better tell God about how ungodly you are. And if you don't repent of every one of them, God's going to get you. That's not true. That's coming before God in the flesh when you start mentioning all of your sins and talking about your failures. In the spirit, you are righteous and holy. Ephesians chapter, you know, I quoted the wrong verse a while ago. It was John 4, 24 that says God is the spirit. Ephesians 4, 24 says in the spirit, you have put on righteous, you've been created in righteousness and true holiness. In your spirit, you are righteous and truly holy. And so if you worship him in spirit, if you come before him based on spirit, you don't have anything to repent of. If you're coming before him telling him how sorry you are, it's because you're in the flesh. You're worshiping him in flesh. You're coming before him in your righteousness on the basis of your goodness. And that's the very reason that you aren't accepted by God and that you don't feel his love and acceptance. You're law-minded. This is what the law does. The law focuses your attention upon yourself and how sorry you are. That's not the way that God wants us to relate to him. And yet this is the way that the vast majority of Christians are being taught. The law is only going to point out your sin. It is never going to point out your righteousness. Notice that it says in verse 21 that this righteousness of God without the law was witnessed in the Old Testament. In other words, the Old Testament law told you it was only temporary. It told you that there was coming a new covenant. It was prophesied, Jeremiah chapter 31. He says, there's coming a day when I will be merciful to their sins and their unrighteousness. David said this in Psalms chapter 34, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Not only did not, does not, but will not impute sin. David prophesied about it and says, man, we are longing for this day. The Old Testament law prophesied the end of itself and we are supposed to be living under a new covenant and most people just call what we do the new covenant, mix it with the old covenant and they don't even have a clear distinction between the two. We are living under condemnation, wrath, guilt, knowledge of sin, focused on ourselves. The law has strengthened sin. The law is a ministration of death. It's a ministration of condemnation. And this is why most Christians aren't enjoying the benefits of the new covenant is because the Old Testament law has not been rejected and set aside. The Old Testament law wasn't wrong. It was correct. It was us that was wrong. The law wasn't given so you could keep it, but the law was given for people who were deceived and to show us our need for a savior. But after that need has been shown and after we turn to the Lord, we now are supposed to relate to God spirit to spirit, not flesh to spirit. And we're supposed to have a totally brand new way of relating to God than people in the Old Testament did. It's unacceptable to worship God in the new covenant the way that David did, the way that Moses did, the way that these people did. It's wrong. We got something better. Man, there, let, let me just go through a few other verses. Look in Romans chapter four and in verse 15. Let's go, let's go back to verse 14. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. If you are trying to relate to God based on the law, then your faith is made void, non-productive. 
Sounds kind of descriptive of most Christians' lives. Their faith isn't producing the right results. They believe that God can do these things, but they never experience it. You know why? Because the law makes their faith void and the promise, the word of God, the promises in the word of God of no effect. And this is where most Christians live. Many Christians know about healing, but very few Christians operate in healing. You know why? Because the law makes your faith void and the promise of no effect. You believe in prosperity, but very few Christians are experiencing it. You believe in joy and peace, and yet you don't experience it. There's multiple reasons for things, but the number one reason probably in most people's lives is they don't understand the new covenant. They are still focused on their sin, thinking that they have to be good enough to earn the favor of God. And then in verse 15, it says, because the law worketh wrath for where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law produces wrath. There are many of you that are afraid of the wrath of God and yet you're born again and you should have zero fear of God. Not, I'm not talking about reverence and respect but I'm talking about fear of rejection, fear of not having God answer your prayers. And most Christians live with that because you're law-minded. You have been brought up under the old covenant law instead of the new covenant grace. Man, those are radical, radical statements. Look in chapter six and in verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin doesn't have dominion over us because we aren't under the law. How clear can it be made? You are not under the law. Well, I believe we still need to keep the law. You are not under the law. Well, does that mean we're supposed to throw it away? You are not under the law. What part of you are not under the law do you not understand? You are not under the law. And because you aren't under the law, sin doesn't dominate you. If sin is dominating you, you are under the law. If you can't overcome sin, you are under the law. Romans chapter one, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, the gospel, talking about grace, the word gospel is used interchangeably with grace in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, and also in Galatians chapter one, verses five and six. The word gospel is talking about the grace of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel, the grace of God, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. If you don't have this power operating in your life to be able to overcome sin, to overcome depression and discouragement, sickness and disease and poverty. It's because you are under the law and not under grace. Grace empowers you not to go live in sin, but to overcome sin. Titus chapter two, verse 12 says, the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. People who take teaching on grace and say, man, we can drink, we can cuss, we can dip, we can chew, we can go with those that do, we can be a homosexual, we can commit adultery because we're under grace. You don't know grace. You aren't living under the true grace. The grace of God teaches you to deny ungodliness, but it changes your motive. I'm no longer living holy so that God can accept me. I'm living holy because God has accepted me. I am so thankful 
that I've learned it's better to live holy than it is to live in sin. I live in holiness as a fruit of salvation, not the root of salvation. Huge difference. Somebody says, what's the difference? Either way, you're supposed to live holy. Huge difference. If you live holy in order to obtain something from God, you're, you're law, you're legalistic. And Satan is going to beat you to a pulp because I can tell you, regardless how zealous you are and how committed you are, you will fail. And when you fail, condemnation, guilt, wrath is going to come upon you. Sense of unworthiness and your faith will be made void and the promise made of no effect. But if you live holy, not in order to obtain something from God, but in thanksgiving because of what he's already done and you do the right thing out of the right motive, well then when you mess up, you say, Father, I don't want to do that. I want to get back and start doing what's right because that's a better way to live. I'm uh, taking opportunity away from the devil. It's a better testimony. But thank you that you love me even when I messed up and you don't come under any of the condemnation. You don't have any of the guilt. Sin doesn't have dominion over you. You're able to get up and just go on because you know that God loves you, not based on your performance. There's a huge difference between those two. And I'm just amazed as I communicate this how hard it is for people to get this. It's just, I imagine because the legalism, the law is so pervasive that people, they just, they, it's hard to wrap their brain around that somebody loves them independent. You know, I prayed with a man out here today that, who the guy was struggling with alcohol and cigarettes and he was honest enough to tell me. And you know what? I just felt the love and the compassion of Jesus for this guy. No condemnation whatsoever. But do you tell him, it's all right for you to get drunk. It's all right for you to do all of these things to destroy your body. No, that's not what I told him. I didn't tell him those things. It isn't good, but it didn't affect God's love for him at all. As a matter of fact, God led me to prophesy that this man was called to the ministry and that he had an anointing on his life. A man who's struggling with alcoholism. He's anointed by God. Legalists would say, no way. God would never use a person with sin in their life. That's the reason they aren't being used. God, man, the Lord uses me in spite of who I am, not because of who I am. I tell you, this is so free, and if you could really understand... There's so many scriptures to go through. I just got a few minutes. Let's look over in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7 in verse 6. But now we are delivered from the law. What part of delivered from the law do you not understand? (laughs) We are delivered from the law. Delivered means that it was bad. Amen. We've been delivered from the law. That being dead wherein we were held, which is talking about our old sin nature, that's dead, it's gone. The law was given for people with sin natures. If you don't have a sin nature, you're delivered from it. If you've been born again, you are now delivered from the law that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. I'm not saying that the law is sin. The law had a purpose. 
you know, I wished I had more time or I wished I could talk faster or something because there's just so many scriptures to bring into bear. And I know that as I'm saying these things, questions are coming up. But over in 1 Timothy chapter, let me just go over there real quick. I'm going to come back to Romans 7, maybe. 1 Timothy chapter 1. It says in verse 5, now the end of the commandment. What part of end of the commandment do we not understand? That means the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. That means idle talk. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. That describes most of religion. They are teaching the law, saying, oh, thank you, Father, for giving us the Ten Commandments. Thank you for showing us how ungodly we are. Thank you for showing us all of the things that we must do. Thank you for showing me that I've got to burn all the moles off my body, that I can't use my left hand anymore. I've got to use my right hand because it was a curse to be left-handed. And on and on, you go on and you say, thank you, Father, for all of this. That's not why God gave it. They don't understand what they're saying or what they're affirming. They just... Bumping their jaws together. In verse eight, it says, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. There's a right use of it. In verse nine, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. Who is a righteous man? Any person who's born again was created in righteousness and true holiness. Ephesians 4, 24, Jesus became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. If you've been born again, you are a righteous man or woman and the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless, for the disobedient for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, etc. The law isn't made for a person who's been born again and been made righteous. It's made for the people that don't know the Lord who are thinking that I'm good, compared to you. And so I think I'm okay. God's got to accept me. God says, you think you're good. Let me show you, you sorry thing. You need salvation. You need a savior. You know, I held a meeting in Houston, Texas one time, and there was about 200 people or so in the thing. It was in a holiday inn. And there was a guy that was walking by and I could tell he listened and then he stepped inside and he stood up and started yelling at me while I was preaching and um, so I, I tried to answer his question, but he wasn't listening to me. He wasn't coherent. He was either drunk or high on something. And so finally I just said, sit down and shut up. And this guy just plopped right down right there. <laughs> and as soon as the service was over, I went back and talked to him. And I started telling him about how God loves you and God wants to change you and God can touch your life. And I was ministering the goodness of God to this guy. And this guy said, I don't need God. I am God. So you know what? That's what the law was made for, is to show a person you think you're God. You think you're God? Man, let me show you. And I took the law and I began to beat this guy with the pulp. 
I showed him, you sorry thing. You stink in the nostrils of God. It's a, it's a blessing that God hadn't turned you into a pile of ashes. And I took the word and I just literally cut this guy to pieces. And within moments, he was crying, oh God, forgive me. And that's the purpose of the law. The law is given for people who are thinking that they're good. It's to beat you down, but it's not made for the righteous person. So let's go back to Romans chapter seven. In verse seven, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? No, the law is not sin. If you use it for the right purpose, if you use it to bring a person to a place to where they know they need salvation and they turn away from self-righteousness and turn to God. If you use the law for that purpose, it's okay. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. The word concupiscent means uncontrolled or unrestrained lust. The law actually causes us to lust. I know some of you think, no way. Yes, it does. You know, I was ministering on this one time and a preacher was listening to this and he, it was really ministering to him, but he was struggling with the law mentality that he had been brought up under all of his life. And he looked out his study window and he saw his son and a bunch of the friends from the neighborhood playing in the backyard. And he thought, I'm going to go test this out. And so he walked to the back door and he called all those kids over and he says, you kids are doing great. They'd been playing for an hour or something and they'd just been fine. And he says... But whatever you do, and he walked over and pointed to this flower. He says, thou shalt not spit on this flower. And then he walked in the house and looked out the window. And he said, those kids had been playing for an hour. They hadn't even known that that flower existed. But the moment he said, you shall not spit on it, he said, half of them spit on that flower immediately. And the other half stood there just drooling, wishing that they were bold enough to spit on it. And you know, this is the way it is. If you start preaching, thou shalt not commit adultery and you start preaching against adultery, you will cause lust for adultery to come in the hearts of people. That's the purpose of the law. It strengthened sin. It made sin come alive. I'm working towards that verse. Look at this in verse uh, eight. But sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Sin, the law makes sin revive. The law makes sin come alive. Start preaching against drinking and people will start lusting to go drink. Start preaching against immorality and people will start becoming immoral. I know some of you, this seems counterintuitive. No, that makes you turn from it. You know, I was raised in religion. I got to quit. I'll just pick up here tonight. But um, I was raised in religion under real strict law. And you know what? I just turned 64 last month. I've never said a word of profanity. I've never taken a drink of liquor in my life. I've never smoked a cigarette. I have been Mr. Righteous, Mr. Holy by religious standards. But... Did you know, even though I was because of fear of punishment, I used to have a dream when I was a little kid that I had smoked a cigarette and I got caught 
and they turned me into the police and the police turned me over to my mother, which was worse than the police. And I wound up in hell and I was burning in hell because I smoked a cigarette. I used to have that dream on a reoccurring basis and I'd wake up in a cold sweat, just fearful that I had smoked a cigarette. Some of you think, boy, you were weird. I was. This is what religion does to you. And because of so much condemnation, I didn't go commit some of the sins that you did. But did you know I probably lusted for it and thought about it and was more sensitive to it than many of you who went out and committed adultery. There are some of you that lived a terrible life and yet I could see, I'd go into a restroom and see a word of profanity scribbled in the restroom stall and I would be guilty for two weeks because I saw it. Some of you are the ones that scribbled it in there. And it didn't even bother you. But it bothered me for two weeks. Sin was having dominion over me. I didn't go commit the action, but I was so sensitive to condemnation that all I had to do was see or hear somebody do it. And you know what? Sin has dominion over you because of the law. Once I understood the grace of God, I've been set free. Not free to just go drink and smoke and dip and chew and do all those kind of things. I've been set free, not only from the actions, but free from the lust for it. The, the fear of it, the condemnation over it. It has set me free. And I'm telling you, there's people right here in this room. I believe that God led me to minister on this, not for all of the people who didn't come, but all of the people who did come. There are people right here in this room that without even realizing it, you are living under the law. You are sin conscious. It's working wrath. It's condemning. It's making sin come alive. You are struggling with all kinds of things that you shouldn't even be struggling with. And the reason you're doing it is because you're living under the law. You've embraced it as a positive, godly thing. It's only good use was to show you that you need a savior. And once you come to a savior, it has ceased to be the thing that directs you in a godly direction. It'll become a negative thing. It'll become a detriment to you if you're trying to live under a sense of performance and doing and adhering all of these things that God has told you to do. Man, that's awesome. That's awesome. Again, I've got much, much more to share. I'm going to continue this tonight and then tomorrow, and I encourage you to come back. And uh, also, you need to get this series. This is just stuff that you need to hear more than once. This is not going to be the thing that most of you have heard. And even if you've heard it, how many other people do you know that could receive this and be set free? These, these teachings are just a tremendous way to share it with other people. Man, there's no telling what Paul would have been able to do if he had had CDs and DVDs. <laughs> just think of how that could have been replayed over and over and over and over. But I encourage you to please get this. You know, if there's anybody here today who doesn't know Jesus personally, I've shared enough of the gospel with you that you should be able to receive salvation. It's not your sins that send you to hell. It's your rejection of Jesus. Jesus has paid for all of your sins and it's offered to you as a totally free gift and you can receive it if you want to. All you gotta do is just make a commitment of your life to Jesus as your personal savior and you can pass from death unto life. And once you get born again, you must receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
You don't have to receive the Holy Spirit in order to go to heaven, but in order to get your mind renewed and to live a victorious life, you have to have the power of the Holy Spirit. The Christian life isn't just difficult to live, it's impossible to live. You can't do it on your own. And also, you know, this is a little sideline, but the things that I've said today, it is all counterintuitive. Everything that we do is based on performance. Your employer hires you and pays you and promotes you based on performance. The legal system deals with your performance. Sad to say your mate, your friends at work, everybody, our whole world is performance-based. And for you to understand grace, which is not performance-based, you need the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't understand this on your own. It says in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, that the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You have to receive this by the Spirit. And if you have not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then I can guarantee you, you will lose what I've said here today. Even if you bore witness in your heart and think, boy, this is good news, you'll lose it without the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to give you understanding and revelation of these things. And it includes many things, but it does include speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is one of the most awesome things you can do for receiving revelation. Matter of fact, the revelation that I have of these things that I've been sharing came by me praying in tongues as I study the word and asking God for revelation. And this is how God reveals it to you. If you don't have this gift of speaking in tongues, you need it without any exception. Every person in here needs to be born again and needs the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues. Is there anybody here today who would say, I want one or both of those things. I need to receive that. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. We've got people back here. Anybody else? Praise God. I'm not asking you to join a church. I don't have a church for you to join. I'm just wanting to pray with you and help you. You know, I only saw a few hands. We had a lot of people come forward last night and receive. But if you don't speak in tongues, you ought to come and receive this. I promise you, it would transform your life. So if you raised your hand or if you were supposed to raise your hand but didn't do it, would you just get up out of your seat and come forward and we want to pray with you right here and help you to receive. Come forward right now and let us pray with you. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Man, it's going to change your life. Hallelujah. Well, we got a lot of people heading in the wrong direction. Let me remind you. For those of you that are leaving, that Van and Regina Smith are going to be out here holding this meeting about continuing education. We also have some people that are going to be there to represent our ministry about Association of Related Ministries International Army. We're starting a minister's association, have our first convention June the 19th through the 21st. And if you are a minister, we've got so many resources that we want to bless you with. So please check on that on your way out. Praise God. Anybody else here that needs to come and receive either the born again experience or you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Anybody else?
Praise God. You know, I know some people think, well, this is kind of short notice. I really haven't been presented with this. I need to think about it. You know what? If you leave here and just let this go, that's not the way to do it. When God is knocking at your heart's door, if you feel a desire, you need to come right now. And you might think, well, I've got questions. Well, I got answers and I've got a book that I'm going to give you and pray for you and it'll help answer these questions. Don't leave here today without coming up and letting us pray for you. I guarantee you nothing bad is going to happen to you. The worst thing that can happen is that you come up here and you have people pray for you and love on you and we give you a free book. That'd be the worst thing that could happen to you, amen. But you know, you could receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This could totally change your life. I know in my heart that there's others sitting out there and I don't know why you aren't up here, but I'm just encouraging you in the name of the Lord, you ought to come. You ought to come and you ought to receive. Somebody's thinking, well, I've already done this and nothing happened. What happens if I go up there and nothing happens? I can guarantee you if you don't come up here, nothing's going to happen. You ought to come. You ought to come. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I was just in Washington, D.C., and we had, we might have had a thousand people present. There was probably a little bit more than we had this morning. But in Washington, D.C., I think we had 300 people come forward to receive this. Here we are in Atlanta, Georgia, and we got less response. And I would love to think it's because everybody else is already baptized in the Holy Spirit, but probably it's because you're so stinking religious. Forgive me for saying that. And you just ought to come and receive, praise God. I don't know why God chose me. I just, I don't know. I'm just blunt. That's the way God talks to me and I don't mean anything bad by it, but you just need to, you just need to come. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You know, before I can pray with you to receive the Holy Spirit, I tell you, here's what I'm going to do today because we've got a graduation this afternoon. I'm going to have to go change clothes and get dressed up in my go to meet and close for the graduation. And we've got this meeting for the uh, continuing education and some other things. If you don't mind, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask our prayer ministers. We've got some of the most anointed people on the planet to minister to you personally and help you to either make Jesus your personal Lord and or receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to let you follow Robert right here. And we've got a prayer room right over there and he's going to lead you over. They will pray with you and help you to receive. But this is going to change your life. I got changed more through the baptism of the Holy Spirit outwardly than I did when I first got born again. This is the most important decision you will make outside of your personal relationship with God. And if you've never made Jesus your personal Lord, you can do that today too. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to ask you to just follow Robert right here. And he's going to lead you over here into this prayer room. And we will pray with you. You can get your purse or whatever you need. And they'll only keep you a minute. And then we're going to give you a book too. Amen. So just go with Robert and let him minister to you. Praise the Lord. Isn't this awesome? God bless you, brother.
Amen. Hallelujah. And I would like to invite our prayer ministers, the rest of you that are here to pray with people to come down here. I know that there's people who came and want prayer. You know, I told people last night that I'm not the only one that can pray for you. And these people are people that love God. Most of them are either students or people that have been associated with our ministry for a long time. They've all been through a training. And we see more miracles happen through them than I ever see happen through me. And so I I said this last night. And as I was leaving, a woman says, would you please pray for my friend? And I said, let one of the prayer ministers pray for you. And they said, oh, no, they want you to pray for them. I just can't pray with everybody. And believe it or not, I got to go get changed so I can have this graduation this afternoon. And so I'm not going to be available. But these people are available and they will stay here and pray with you and minister to you and they will be able to help you. So if you need prayer for anything, I'd like to invite you to come forward right now and just let one of our prayer ministers pray with you. Come forward. We've got people standing at the aisles that are going to direct you towards a prayer minister so that everybody won't just... Stand on one side and please cooperate with them. But if you need prayer, come forward right now. Remember that we have another service tonight at 7 o'clock. And then tomorrow we have a 10 o'clock and a 6 p.m. service. And we start an hour earlier so that my crew can get everything packed up and ready to go before 2 or 3 in the morning. So if you need prayer for anything, please come forward right now. The rest of you, remember that we've got CDs and DVDs available and we will be back tonight. I will be continuing and so come back and join us then. If you need prayer, come forward right now. The rest of you are dismissed. Thank you, Jesus.